So we'll be in uh, covering Second or First Thessalonians chapter two, though. Um, so if you're turning there, as we're turning there, um, the title of this is "Tell the World" is what I called it, and we're we're going to look at verses two through four. It's kind of the main point of the whole chapter, so we'll cover it because um, it's a little bit of a continuation of chapter one with the thanksgiving that Paul gives, but it's also him now kind of reiterating to the church of, of why they're there, why it was important that the, that the love that they had shown, that, you know, that the church at Thessalonica had shown Paul and his companions. So he wants to really thank them and kind of make them, help them understand, you know, to kind of keep going because it's easier to kind of quit. You get some good, hey, good job. You did great, attaboy. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, we can stop. We can rest. Um, but there's more work to be done for the Thessalonians and they don't want to, he wants, Paul wants to make sure they don't give up yet. Or give up at all, really, but not give up yet, right? So, start off with a little bit of a poem. Um, it says, Listen, my children, and you shall hear on the midnight, of the midnight ride of Paul Revere. On the 18th of April in 75, hardly a man is now alive who remembers that famous day and year. Right? So this is the opening stanza of uh, Longfellow's um, poem, Paul Revere's Ride, right? And what did, what did Paul Revere do supposedly according to history according to our you know national history right he rode through the towns yelling the british are coming the british are coming right um that's what we were taught now most historians think that the phrase was something like the regulars are on the move and it wasn't yelled because he didn't want to wake up all the other uh the neighbors who were british or who were british sympathizers right because remember they were we were still british at the time in, in the 1775, right? So, so they didn't want to just yell and kind of let everybody know what was going on. So they kind of, the real story is that they probably went through the towns passing the message, but not necessarily yelling it. But the message was still out there, right? They were still warning the rebels that, to get ready for the fight, right? They're coming. And so, right, they were warning, they were sending out this message and so they were proclaiming this thing, right? So Paul Revere and the others that were with him, there was a couple, two other men with him, right? They were brave to ride through the, through the darkness and declare this message. But they had to be bold because the fate of the nation depended on it. If we would have been caught unawares late in the middle, early morning, late in the middle of the night kind of thing, um, it could have been very bad, right? The British would have been able to probably go in and take over everything, probably capture the, anybody who they thought was a rebel. And our history would have turned out somewhat different probably right and so what's more at stake what's more than the freedom of the nation is actually the freedom of people's souls here right that's really the bigger thing that we are aware of that we need to be aware of as, a, as christians and we need to be a little bit bolder to speak up because really that's what we're talking about we're not just talking about freedom of a nation from some oppressive other country we're talking about being free from sin the oppressive nature of sin and people being held to that and being held under it, basically. Right? But we have this message. We have the key to freedom. That's through Jesus Christ. Right? Because if we are the ones that we come here, we tell people, oh, I'm a Christian, but that's it. You know, we need to go a little more into it. We need to rescue these people that are around here that don't know yet. Right? So that's really what Paul is telling. He's, he's getting ready to, he's kind of getting the Thessalonians into this to say, look, we need to be bold for the faith. We need to proclaim it. And there's reasons why. He gives them two reasons why. We're, look at, it's on your outline. 
Um, you know, we've been approved and we've been entrusted to spread the gospel. That's the, the two points of the outline. And so we're supposed to go tell the world about God. We're supposed to go and teach and make disciples, right? That's what we are supposed to do. And so let's go ahead and read 1 Thessalonians. Uh, we'll read 1 through 4. That's kind of a good way. Well, we'll just read the first verse as well. Um, so this is Paul's continuation of the letter. It says, For you yourselves know, brothers and sisters, that our visit with you was not without result. On the contrary, after we had previously suffered and were treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, we were emboldened by our God to speak the gospel of God to you in spite of great opposition. For our exhortation didn't come from error or impurity or an intent to deceive. Instead, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, for we speak not to please people, but rather God who examines our hearts. Right? And so he kind of goes in, that's the gist of the of the the whole chapter is he's given the reason why they came and what enabled them to preach the gospel with with boldness because here's the main point is that God wants us to declare the gospel with boldness right he wants us to get out there and tell people about the gospel and not be afraid to share it because again he he has approved us to spread the gospel and he has also entrusted us to spread the gospel so the first point is that we've been approved. So Paul is recapping his journey from Philippi to Thessalonica, right? And he's also refuting what people were saying about him. It's every, every letter you read, there are people going around or behind Paul trying to discount him, trying to get him off his story, trying to convince other people that he's lying or he's just trying to get rich or he's a, you know, he's a shyster or whatever, right? He, there's people going behind with bad PR for Paul and he has to go back and refute it. And so he didn't have social media to argue with him about it. He had to write letters and had to rely on knowing people and meeting people and talking to them. And because in, like, in verse 3 we see right, that, that, that they didn't come from error. Right? They're not saying that something is like um, twisting Judaism. Right? I'm not, Christ is just some weird sect of of Judaism, and so they're, they're, he's got it wrong. He's perverting it. He's not manipulated to get money with his new religion, right? Or he just wants to lead people astray with some wrong message, right? He's going around defending himself to remind the church why they really came, why they were enduring all the stuff that they did, right? He said, we, we were treated badly or outrageously in Philippi. We suffered. And this is one of the things that everybody, historians can kind of go with it and say, when some people say, well, the whole, the whole thing about Jesus' resurrection is made up, and so everybody just kind of was, was in on the story. But yet, all these men, Paul, Peter, Matthew, Mark, all these guys, the, 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 the history of the legend, the, the, we'll say the myth, but it's, it's just the, the church, got, church traditions have said that all these people endured great suffering. Very few people, pretty much nobody, will endure suffering of this nature on this scale, for a lie. At some point, you're going to crack. Say, you know what? We made the whole thing up. And that's the thing, too. They would maybe even say it just to get out of it, even if it wasn't true. But none of them do it. None of them recount or recant their story and say, you know what? Yeah, we were sitting around after Jerusalem, after Jesus actually died, and we killed him, so we made it up. We stole his body. We did all this stuff. And we went around preaching around the region, having people chase us around and try to kill us. Because we made it up. 
because we wanted to get rich, but none of these people end up living or being rich or anything like that. Paul spent most of his life in jail. So he's not making this up, and he's kind of reminding like, look, this is the real deal. Christ is the real deal. And so we can be bold because what he says is what he did. And so what the message we're passing on is important because it's important that we declare this gospel in the midst of all this conflict. That's what he was doing, and that's what he was encouraging them to do. Because now, like, kind of like, remember, like, we talked last week that the people in Thessalonica, they were on, they didn't have friends on either side of the, the Gentiles or pagans or the Jews. Nobody liked the Christians. So if you have businesses, you probably lose your customer base, lose your friends, you may lose your family. And so he's, he's encouraging them to keep going like the Christian church. The church is now your new family no matter what. They're now your you know, customer base. So maybe you get new customers. And it's important, right? Because he's saying, I was treated badly here. They, they threw me out of Thessalonica or I had to sneak out as we saw in Acts 17, but he keeps preaching the gospel boldly. He keeps putting it there because he believed the message so much and so strongly that he wanted to keep telling people about it, even at the great risk of his own life. And we see that several times, and especially in Acts where Luke kind of captures all of that. But he reminds the Thessalonians that they, you know, Paul, Paul and his compatriots, they were approved by God, and so he's passing that approval on to them, on to the Thessalonican church. He said, you guys are here as well. He, later in the chapter, he reports and says, look, we based our model pretty much like the same thing of the churches in Judea. So there, there were other Christian churches already in, in existence, but now this is going out to the wider world. He says, look, there's other churches going through the same thing like you guys. Right, because who, who likes to think they're the only ones that have problems? Right, because when we teach marriage classes, somebody says, well, I feel like I'm the only one that does this. We're the only married couple that ever fights about dishes. We're like, yes, yes, we all fight about dishes, yes. <laughs> right, yes, we all fight about this. We've all had that argument about whatever. And people are like, you mean we're not broken? We're not, yes, we're all broken. Yes, we are, but you're not the only ones, right? You're not weird. You're not, you know, different. You're the same. You're going through the normal course of life. And so he's reminding them, hey, look, all the churches, every Christian church now at this point in the first century is going through the same stuff. And so it makes you feel a little better. Like, okay, we're not the only ones here. And the same thing with us, right? We're not the only ones that are small. We're not the only ones that are stuck somewhere in a place where it seems like nobody wants to come. God will work that out and change it, right? But it's, it's an important message for us to be like, okay, we are, we're normal, most normal-sized churches are anything under 100 people. That's a normative-sized church. So we don't have to be the megachurch, 8,000 people. Right? But Paul tells Timothy as well to be an approved workman who is not ashamed. Right? Because that's really what it is. is we, we are approved. Because God is the one who's approved us and not man. Right? So Gal Galatians, Paul gives a somewhat similar message. He says, for, now, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. I would not be telling this message. And Paul says the same thing in verse 5. He says, for we never use flattering speech as you know. And in verse 4 he says, for we speak not to please people, but rather God, who examines our hearts. Because at the end of the age, we're going to stand before God with what he gave us and say, what did you do with it? And you say, I didn't do anything. 
And we're going to talk about that parable of talents in the next point. But we are approved because Christ's work on the cross reconciles us with God. Right? And we've been chosen by God. Right? You have his approval. You have his stamp. You've been sealed by his blood. Right? Just like when they would seal a scroll, they roll it up, they make a message, seal it up, put the wax seal on it, and they have a ring or some kind of royal seal to know that it came from the king. And that king, that's usually why it was a ring, because he wore it around his finger and nobody else could get it. So he had to stamp it. Right? So we are that thing God has to stamp us. Nobody else can stamp us to say you're approved. And it doesn't matter what other people think about us. And so once we have that stamp, though, now we have this responsibility to use our faith and our talents that we have been given for the purpose of spreading the gospel, right? Because God has also entrusted us, Paul tells us in verse 3 or 4, excuse me, just that we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. And so Paul tells them they've been entrusted with this responsibility, right? And they should be bold with the, what they have been given. So in Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 30, Jesus tells the parable of the talents, where three men are given a certain portion of the master's money, and they're entrusted with this while the master goes away. He says, here's some money, I'm leaving. You guys figure out what to do with it. So two of the guys, they are faithful, they invest it wisely, right? And they increase their money. Say, so you gave me five, you gave me five dollars. You come back, like I'm giving you ten dollars back, right? The other guy said he gave me like two or three dollars, and I'm giving you six. So basically, they double their money. I gave you six dollars back. The other guy was was given one or two dollars, and you know he thinks his boss is is hard. He's a hard man. If I lose this money, I'm going to be beat and beat up. So he buries it. So that way he keeps it safe. Nobody's going to take the money. It's in the ground. They can't find it. I have a little treasure map. X marks the spot. So when he comes back, I can go get it. Right? And what are the two faithful servants here? Well done, good and faithful servant. The other guy says, you ordered you with your money. He's like, well, I knew you were a hard man. I knew if I lost it, you'd beat me up and kill me. Possibly. So I didn't do anything with it. I put it in the ground. So I kept it safe for you. It's like, you lazy fool. Right? You didn't do anything with the money. Whatever money I gave you, I wanted you to do something with it. It was an intent to do something with it. So keep it and use it. Spend it to make, you got to spend money to make money kind of thing. And so God rewards the people who take the risk. They act a little boldly and they end up increasing their money. But the other person, you know, he was not. He thought he was playing it safe. And so God wants us to be bold. God, God doesn't want us to be reckless, though, or foolish. I want to make sure we're, there's a line. There's a kind of a fine line between being foolish and bold. You know, jumping off the building without a parachute is, is foolish. Jumping off a big building with a good parachute is, is bold. Most people wouldn't do it anyway, right? But that's kind of the, some of the difference. But we need to be bold and show that our faith, that we do something with it. Right? We've been given faith. God has given us however much faith he's given us, each of us. Some, some of us have more than others, but we need to use it. So if we just keep it and bury it, it's not doing anybody any good. You're, you're saved, so I want to make sure we're clear on that. So that, that, that is the good that it is doing, but it doesn't do anybody else any good. All right, and so John Piper defines Christian boldness as acting by the Holy Spirit on an urgent conviction of the face of some threat. 
And so the threat with Paul Revere and the rebels and you know, our, our American country that was in, in the beginning stages, there was a threat with the British coming over and, and start trying to take over you know, in, in that combat and warfare on us, really. That same warfare is going on through different powers and principalities that we may or may not see or may, you know, some other people may or may not believe. There's an urgency because we don't know when the master's going to return like the, like the parable. We don't know when that's happening. So today might be the last day. It may not be. We may have hundreds of more years. We don't know. So that's the urgency because you never know when you're going to die. And this isn't to scare people, but it's just a very, very clear reality. And so that's the urgency that we react and act under this conviction of the Holy Spirit to talk to people about who Jesus is. Because we see it in Acts 4, when Peter and John are arrested by the Jewish leadership, they're bold in front of the leaders. And verse 13 says, the leaders observed the boldness of Peter and John, and they were amazed, like, wow, this, these people are uneducated. These are fishermen. And they're standing here quoting the Bible to us. And we're the, you know, theology experts. We're the seminary professors, and that here they are preaching to us. And they were amazed by it. And then when the Peter and John were let go, because they were actually afraid to keep them arrested. The leaders, they said, well, let's let them go. They went back and prayed with the church. And so the church prayed to God and said, now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. And that's the end of Acts chapter 4. And so we see that when we act and we pray and with boldness, we get more things, right? When we spend a little of the money, we get more money back. We get this capital. Because we have to put ourselves out there to bring people in. And so we're working on that. That's what the meeting will be here and part of what we're going to talk about. Um, but right, this is, where the, this is the next part of where we're going. Right? How do we get out there and, and tell people who we are? Because Paul is encouraging the Thessalonians that they are the next generation to keep the gospel message going in the region. Right? They're the ones that are responsible for training the next group of people. And so it's come down all the way from the first century. So this letter was probably written in the 40s, maybe the fifth, early 50s AD. It's come down all the way to us almost 2,000, 2000 years later. It's come down to us and we are now like the church at Thessalonica. We are here, these words apply to us just as much as anybody else. And so, Wadsworth, Longfellow's closing, closing stanza is a nice way to close this sermon, right? So through the night rode Paul Revere, and so through the night went his cry of alarm to every Middlesex village and farm, a cry of defiance and not of fear. A voice in the darkness, a knock at the door, a word that shall echo evermore. For born on the night wind of the past, through all our history to the last, in the hour of darkness and peril and need, the people will awaken and listen to hear the hurrying hoofbeats of that steed in the midnight message of Paul Revere. Right? God has approved you by including you into his family. And just like Jesus entrusted the apostles with the Great Commission, right, that charge has extended all the way through time, through all our history to the last to make disciples, to train people, to tell them about Christ to the next generation of Christians and to carry on that good news. 
Right? And we're all commanded and called to just spread this gospel message. And God has equipped us to do this so we can shine a light into the dark world at midnight. Right? We can knock on people's doors. We can tell them this is what's going on in their hour of darkness and peril and need because they may feel stuck. They may feel like they have nowhere to go. They're just completely dark. This world is closing in on me and I have nowhere else to go. They don't have the good news. So it's our job to tell them the good news. And so we're here to wake people up from their slumber that the enemy is coming. Right? That's what we're here to do. We are kind of guardians, if you want to look at it that way. This is an outpost. We're here to, 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 to tell people where they can get salvation. So as we sing our last song, right before we go into the meeting, think about this. Think about ways that we can reach people that need to be reached, to reach people that we don't, that know or maybe don't know the gospel. So let's stand and we'll sing our last song.